Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, dear Octavia Bright. How are you? Hi, my darling Carrie. I am good. I'm very good. I'm looking at an extremely luscious, actually slightly alarmingly enormous plant that's growing outside my living room window that I need to cut back. But at the moment, it's making me feel like I'm in Little Shop of Horrors. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. the, the plant exactly. that eats people. That eats people. So I'm kind of, I'm looking at it. It's looking at me. Is it thinking that I'm dinner? I think maybe it is. I'm kind of hungry. That's how I am. How are you? I'm good. I'm going to immediately listen to the Little Shop of Horrors soundtrack as soon as we hang up this call. You've really inspired me. It's a banger. Um, it is a it's banger. such a banger. And weirdly, maybe this is extremely boring, but I got a line from it stuck in my head the other day, but I couldn't remember what musical it was from. And you mentioning Little Shop of Horrors has made me realize that it was that musical. <gasps> Happy to so serve. You've, you've, I'm really great. <laughs> I feel like I've solved a mystery inside of my head. So, um, hi. My gift to you, I'm great. <laughs> but on to the show. Today, we're thrilled to welcome the American writer Curtis Sittenfeld to talk about her new novel, Romantic Comedy. This is a book narrated by late-night comedy TV writer Sally, who thinks she's over romance. But then a pop icon with a reputation for exclusively dating models is the guest host on her show, and he might upend all of her expectations. I should also say I was flying solo for the interview. Octavia was not well, and so it's me talking to Curtis, but then Octavia is here for the rest of the show, which is very exciting. And Curtis's book offered us the perfect opportunity to have a wider discussion about the genre of romantic comedy from Pride and Prejudice to Detransition Baby. We'll be thinking about how rom-coms can be a source of great pleasure, fun, and comfort, but also asking whether they will always be mired in patriarchal and heteronormative structures. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, babe. (laughs) All for you, Octavia. So before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little more about Curtis Octavia? I sure can. Curtis Sittenfeld is the author of the Sunday Times and New York Times bestselling Rodham. Her other novels include American Wife and Prep, both bestsellers and longlisted for the Orange Prize, and the acclaimed short story collections You Think It, I'll Say It, and Help Yourself. Her stories have appeared in The New Yorker, Esquire, Oprah Magazine, and The New York Times Magazine. Sittenfeld was also the guest editor for the 2020 Best American Short Stories Anthology. She lives with her family in the American Midwest, and I was really bummed out not to be able to talk to her, but I sounded like a frog at the time, so... (laughs) (laughs) Also, a quick reminder that we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. Our latest Patreon was all about Paris, both as a city and a literary idea. Also, Octavia's memoir, This Ragged Grace, is out in the world now. So please, please, please buy a copy if you haven't already. We will stop talking about this eventually, but not (laughs) yet. We really will, I promise. (laughs) I personally recommend that you read this book. And this month, as the show goes out, you're also on tour, aren't you, Octavia? I am essentially right now on tour. Who knows where I am? Am I in Manchester? Am I in Bristol? Am I in Edinburgh? I'm not sure, but I am up and down the country for a couple of weeks and um, I'm very, very excited about it. Check out Octavia's socials for more information about that. 
In the meantime, you can find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Curtis Sittenfeld, a discussion of the form of the romantic comedy, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So start with a meet cute and then enjoy some literary friction for the next hour. Top form, Carrie. That was absolutely, you've been a bit shaky lately, but that nailed it. Curtis Sittenfeld, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. We've asked you to start with a reading from your new novel, Romantic Comedy. Do you mind setting it up for us? So this is actually the prologue, the the very beginning. So it's it's pretty self-explanatory, but the protagonist, Sally, um, is in her late 30s, and she's a writer for a, a late-night sketch comedy show. You should not, I've read many times, reach for your phone first thing in the morning. The news, social media, and emails all disrupt the natural stages of waking and create stress, which is how I'll preface the fact that when I reached for my phone first thing one morning and learned that Danny Horst and Annabelle Lilly were dating, I was furious. I wasn't furious because I was in love with Danny Horst, or for that matter, with Annabelle Lilly. Nor was I furious because two more people in the world had found romantic bliss while I remained mostly single. And I wasn't furious that I hadn't heard the news directly from Danny, even though we shared an office. The reason I was furious was that Annabelle Lilly was a gorgeous, talented, world-famous movie star, and Danny was a schlub. He wasn't a bad guy, and he too was talented. But for Christ's sake, he was a TV writer, a comedy writer. He was a male version of me. He was pasty skinned and sleep deprived and sarcastic. And perhaps because he was male or perhaps because he was a decade younger than I was, he was a lot less self-consciously people pleasing and a lot more recklessly crass. At after parties, he was undisguisedly high or tripping He referred often, almost guilelessly, to both his social anxiety and his porn consumption. When he'd considered going on Rogaine, I had, at his request, used his phone to take pictures of the top of his head so that he could see exactly how much his hair was thinning there. And when he applied the medication the first time, I'd checked to make sure the foam was evenly rubbed in. And I was so familiar with the various genres of his burps that I could infer from them what he'd eaten recently. Danny was like a little brother to me. I adored him and he stank and got on my nerves. But his foul and annoying ways had apparently not precluded Annabelle Lilly's interest. She'd been the guest host of The Night Owls three weeks prior, coinciding with the release of her latest film, the fourth in an action franchise in which she played a corrupt FBI agent. She delivered the opening monologue while wearing a one-shouldered black satin cocktail dress with a thigh slit, highlighting her slender yet curvy body. Her long red hair had been styled into old Hollywood waves. Annabelle was beautiful and sweet and charming, and if she didn't have the best comic timing, she was completely game, which was just as important. 
In one sketch, she'd been called on to play a woodchuck, which entailed crawling around on all fours and wearing a furry suit and two enormous prosthetic front teeth. In fact, Danny had written this sketch, meaning it was plausible that they'd first been attracted to each other while rehearsing it. The woodchuck part was endearing enough that I might have been able to forgive them both, except that theirs was the third such pairing that had occurred at TNO in the last few years. And as anyone knows who's ever written a joke or heard a fairy tale or read an article in the style section of a newspaper, there's a rule of three. In this case, it constituted the trend of a romance between a bona fide celebrity and a TNO staffer who'd met on the show but crucially, a bona fide female celebrity and a male staffer. The year before, at a wedding I'd attended, an icy blonde Oscar-winning British actress named Imogen Wagner had married a cast member named Josh Beekman, best known for his recurring character, Backney Guy. And the year before that, the head writer, Elliot Markovitz, 5'8", 40, and my topsider-wearing boss, had married a multi-platinum album-selling pop singer named Nicola Dornan, 5'10", 30, and a special envoy for the UN. And this, of course, was the essence of my fury, that such couples would never exist with the genders switched, that a gorgeous male celebrity would never fall in love with an ordinary, dorky, unkempt woman. Never, no matter how clever she was. But I also knew as I lay in bed glaring at the screen of my phone, Danny and Annabelle's debut as a couple had occurred the night before in the form of making out at the club where Annabelle's 24th birthday party had been held, that I would write about my fury. Just as I always did, I'd turn my feelings into comedy, and that was how I'd cure myself. It's a great opening. Thank you. So... This book is a love story, which is kind of obvious from the title and obvious from any of the of the copy in it. But it's also set in this world of late night comedy. And I was wondering if those things always went together in your mind when you were conceiving of the idea or if they sort of came together over time. So the way that I conceived of this this novel is that especially early in the pandemic, my family was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live. And I would think to myself, like I would observe the real life pattern of talented, but somewhat ordinary looking men from the show dating super famous, super talented, super gorgeous female celebrities who are guests. And I thought someone should write a screenplay for a romantic comedy where a woman who's a a writer on a show like Saturday Night Live writes a sketch making fun of this phenomenon and of how it would never happen with like an ordinary female writer and a smoking hot male celebrity guest. And then that week there's, you know, a smoking hot male celebrity guest and she has chemistry with him to her own astonishment. And then a few months passed and I had this sort of realization where I thought, oh, maybe that screenplay should be a novel and maybe the someone who writes it should be me. So because that was kind of like the origins of the book, it always had this setting and it always had romance. Did you feel at all daunted about writing about the world of Saturday Night Live? Like, how did you approach that insider look? I mean, I think that... 
I really deliberately wanted to write a book that would be fun to work on. Like it would be fun to live in the fictional world. And, and then my hope was it would be fun for readers to, to read it eventually. But I, I feel like in some ways I wrote this <laughs> very self-interestedly, like I wanted to entertain myself and I wanted to kind of escape from just like the kind of misery and isolation of the pandemic. And so that was my like guiding principle. So therefore doing research, which I did a ton of was a joy. Like it was listening to, you know, comedians interview each other on podcasts. And then I read books by current and former cast members. I watched a documentary called Saturday Night. I interviewed two people who've worked on the show in the recent past. So all of that was so much fun. I don't know. I mean, I understand that I'm kind of setting myself up writing a book like this for for other people to be like, oh, it's funny or to be like, it's not that funny. Like, you know, but you're always setting yourself up for criticism, no matter what the topic of your book is. Like, it's not like if I didn't write about comedy, I could protect myself from criticism. So therefore, I might as well write what I want to write. So let's talk about romantic comedy as a genre, too. And that's the theme of our show today. What what do you like about romantic comedy as a genre? Are you a big consumer of romantic comedies? I would say I am a consumer and not a big consumer. When I was at a very young age, I started reading romances, like the sort of most conventional or traditional romances like Harlequins or like the kind where, you know, like a woman has kind of cleavage spilling out on the cover and she and the man both have their hair blown back. And and I read that all through high school. And then, you know, I consume that less now or like I don't I actually probably don't don't consume the most traditional romances but I read some of the more like hybridy ones where it's sort of a romance it's sort of something else or it's mostly a romance but it's not historical I wonder what what do you think is the appeal of the romantic comedy is it just that we love to watch people fall in love is there something more to it than that I definitely think we love to watch people fall in love. And so then I think the question is, why do we love that? I mean, I think it's very richly emotional and sort of, you know, kind of represents the intersection of like nervousness and anxiety and insecurity and self-doubt. And then also like hope and excitement and optimism And like, it can go really wrong or really right. And there's something very human about about both directions. Like there's something very human and identifiable about being exhilarated and about being humiliated. So in a weird way, it's like a win-win, you know? (laughs) It's like whether the person ends up like elated or heartbroken, you can kind of identify and you've kind of been there. Totally. I was also thinking about this idea of wish fulfillment because this novel, Romantic Comedy, is about Sally. You know, she's given up on romance. She's a writer on a TV show. She doesn't think she's that attractive. And then she meets this really hot, really famous, really rich celebrity who totally falls for her. And 
is actually a really sweet, wonderful guy. Do you think that's a version of it? It's like playing out a fantasy that we want. Was that on your mind when you were writing it? It's funny because someone, since the book was published, someone kind of said like, oh, it's, you know, it's like Sally does find her prince in this almost fairy tale-ish way and, and, you know, goes to visit him in his castle. And I thought, oh my God, you're right. Like I had never realized it. I mean, I, I think I conceived of such a specific story. Like I didn't think to myself, I want to write about like an underdog woman and like a, a very conventionally attractive man. Like I, I thought like, I want to write about a sketch comedy writer who is good at her job. And it isn't unhappy personally, but as you say, has kind of given up. She, she was married and divorced in her early twenties. And so she's just, she just kind of feels like romantic, like a big passionate romantic love is not really in the cards for me. And, you know, nobody gets everything they want. So, okay. Like, I think that there should be some element of wish fulfillment in a romantic comedy because, you know, you want, I don't, I don't think a reader or a viewer will enjoy it if they don't see the romance as being kind of appealing in some way. But I actually, I would make the case that Noah is the most appealing things about him are not that he's rich, famous, or even that he's super handsome. It's that he like really recognizes Sally and like listens to her and sees her as as a specific person and remembers things that she's told him and just like really likes her and likes being around her. Like that's, that's the part that makes him kind of awesome. And if he, if he had the same bank account and the same appearance, but he was an asshole, I don't, I don't think that Sally would be into him. And I don't think readers would be rooting for him to find romance with him. Yeah, I think that's true. I want to go back to what you said about, you know, appealing to readers and in terms of wish fulfillment. And Octavia and I were talking about romantic comedy, and I'm a much bigger fan of the genre than she is, I think. And one of the things that she tends to say is like, it reinforces a lot of structures and ideas about like capitalism and heteronormativity that, you know, can be oppressive in some ways in our society. And I wonder if you have thoughts about like that. Do you see the marriage plot, for instance, as problematic? What's the case that Octavia would make? Because I, I think this is a super interesting issue. And what are the specific reasons that she would say it, it, the marriage plot reinforces heteronormativity and capitalism? Well, I guess most of the time it's setting us up with a very kind of limited um, means of imagining a future in terms of mm. like who we partner with, how we partner, what a good partnership would be, choosing a, a sort of nuclear family over different kinds of and ways of being together and pairing kind of wealth and success with a kind of uh, success in life as well in terms of who we're looking for and what we need. I'm sure she would be much more articulate about this, but I, I, can, I can see that. I agree. I mean, I do agree with all of that. Like, I, I think that in romantic comedy, I, I think I try to acknowledge, like at one point, 
Sally says that she feels like her job is the love of her life, which I think some people might be like, oh my God, that's, that's just as bad in a different way. Um, I mean, she happens to have a very creative job. So, you know, maybe it's different than if, I don't know if Jeff Bezos said that his job was the love of his life or something, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. And I, I, do you, have you read any books that you feel like hold up an alternate, you know, kind of form? I mean, obviously there's like tons of queer romances, but like that hold something up that's not like a two person romance that seems to ultimately land in some marriage like structure that is a romance? Like, do you feel like you've read that book? I don't know that I have, but the one example that comes to mind is G Transition Baby by Tori Peters, which is kind of a romantic comedy. Oh, I love D Transition Baby. And it doesn't really end in like one partnership, but there is a lot of tension and chemistry and romance in that book. And so maybe that's a model or maybe, I mean, you could also say maybe we throw out the model. Maybe there's no way within the structure that we have culturally that we've kind of inherited. It comes with too much baggage. Maybe there isn't a way to work within it. If we say that, then is romance just this sort of, you know, like an illusion propagated by capitalism? Wow. I Yeah, maybe. Do you, do you think so? I. I guess I'm a romantic, so I'd like to believe that's not true. <laughs> I mean, I'm a person who just wrote a book called Romantic Comedy. So like, it was supposed to be my fun escape, not my indictment of Western culture. So like, I, I mean, I, I think I like to have my viewpoint challenged. I like to have my own, you know, ideas about the world challenged. So it's like, I would love, I mean, I, and I, I, do feel like I like read articles about this or like there's actually a super interesting book. Have you ever read um, Marriage, A History by Stephanie Coombs, who's a professor? No, I haven't. Oh my God. It's, it's fascinating, fascinating. Cause it is basically about how marriage, I mean, it, it goes into this like over time periods and across cultures, but obviously marriage was created to, consolidate, you know, real estate and political power. And then love got kind of introduced (laughs) later, like the, the ideal of love got introduced later. I mean, so it's kind of like response to the question that I just asked you, you know, like, is, is love an illusion? Like, I I think I'm not a hundred percent confident. I think I come down on the side of the sort of emotions of great affection and interest and like exhilaration like those are real I think and and I think people feel them for other individuals although even I think people who study these topics would say oh that's a, that's limerence or like oh that exhilaration lasts you know maybe two years or whatever but but I would say I think that that is real whether that like is or should be or needs to be connected to marriage feels almost like a separate question to me. Let's get back to some other things in the book. I know. You were planning for the conversation. I'm just letting the conversation go where it goes, you know? Um, I wanted to ask you about emails because uh, part of this book is basically an epistolary novel. It's emails exchanged between Sally and Noah. 
And was that always a part of the novel that you wanted to write? And what did you like about that form? What did you struggle with in that form? Can you just talk about the the experience of writing those emails? Um, Yes. So like, I like contrast as a, as a person and as a reader and as a writer. So almost like, you know, if I ate a sandwich for lunch, I don't want to eat a sandwich for dinner, you know, (laughs) Um, or (laughs) if I, I mean, I do wear the same clothes day after day, the literal same clothes and the clothes that look like each other. But so it's not like my life is so full of contrast, but, but I felt like, okay, the first section has this very intense, you know, detailed setting specific like vibe to it where it's like it's a week in the life of the sketch comedy show and then it's fun for me to have the contrast of like you jump two years forward you jump to like a different format of writing you jump to a different geographical location like by that point you know it's the pandemic has occurred Noah is in his mansion in LA Sally is with her stepdad back in Kansas City, Missouri. But they're also, there's something like they both feel a little bit disembodied and the format I think allows for, like it's almost like they're in their minds and they're, especially as the the emailing intensifies, they're like thinking a lot about each other and, and kind of wondering about the other person. So I always thought that that would be a fun approach. And I think I mentioned it to both my American and my British editor. And I think they were like a tiny bit like skeptical, like supportive, but, but almost like, well, why don't you try it and see, see how it turns out. And, and in terms of like the challenges, I mean, I think I did have the realization that, I had to like write a complete, like one complete email from one person and then a complete email from the next person and then a complete email from, you know, the first person and then a complete email from the second person. Like I couldn't jump ahead or I couldn't even like leave paragraphs out because they were really responding very specifically to what the other one would say. And they're writing these emails during the lockdown. And I wonder, did you question whether COVID and lockdown should be a part of this book. Because, you know, sometimes when I hear that COVID is part of a narrative, I, my heart sinks a little bit. Yeah. Just because (laughs) it feels, it feels so recent and it feels like I'm reading something that I've gone through that I don't want to read about again. And maybe the letters helped with that, but I wonder how did you sort of manage that? Because I imagine you might have that feeling as a reader as well. It's funny because if I were writing romantic comedy, like if I were starting it this summer instead of in the summer of 2021, maybe I wouldn't make COVID be, you know, a part of the plot. Like, I I think that at the time I was writing it, it was sort of like, you know, like when will life feel more normal than not? Which of course, to this day, you know, different people would answer that question very differently. But I could have set the book, like started it, say, in, you know, 2015 and ended it in 2017. But I think I would have been like, I know what's coming and the characters don't. And, and like, I'm worried about them. And so it's, it seemed actually more optimistic to show them getting through it. And it also seemed like it was plausible that the disruption of COVID would cause them to like reassess their lives and would, would allow them to like have time to reconnect in a pretty deep way. Mm. That reaching out to your exes stereotype, I suppose, is yes, part of this exactly. in a way. 
<laughs> so I devoured this book. I actually started by listening to the audiobook, which was really great. And I listened to it sort of in, I think in two days or something like that. And what really has always struck me about your writing is that it is so narratively compelling. I just want to turn the page. And I think that's a really tough skill and not a lot of writers have it. And maybe it's impossible for you to describe how you write such narratively compelling prose, but I wonder if you have, if you're thinking about it as you're editing, for instance, like, do you have ways that you test whether the story is moving along or whether the pacing (laughs) is working, things like that? So... I don't, I mean, I think that like the short answer would be if I write something and I get kind of bored reading it, then then that's a good sign that I should cut it. I mean, it's a bad sign, but it's it's an informative thing to know. But I feel like, like I actually take what you're saying as very high praise. And it is, that is a huge goal of mine. Like I would, I would rather have someone say, like, I just devoured your novel, then your novel is exquisitely written or like, oh, you know, you're such a like lyrical writer or something like the I, I consciously have thought to myself, you know, like if I I have a few friends that I like walk with like one on one usually. And if if a friend of mine was like, oh, my God, this crazy thing happened to me at work or like I went to a dinner party and like you won't believe what happened. And and I'd be like, wait, tell me. Okay. T-. And then my friend starts and I'd be like, and then what? And then what? And then what? Like, I want the reader to feel that way, to be like, wait, but then what happened with that? And I, some of it I think is making the characters realistic. I mean, they're not like universal, but they're realistic and making the characters feel emotionally invested in what they're experiencing and then allowing the reader to also be emotionally invested. As a final question, and I suspect this is a question you get a lot, but I couldn't help thinking about it. You live in the Midwest and a lot of your books feature protagonists from the Midwest or who live in the Midwest. And in this case, Sally, she's from Kansas City. Her stepdad still lives there. She's moved to New York. I couldn't help think but like about Gatsby, which is not to say that Sally's a Gatsby, but it's kind of an archetype in fiction, you know, of a Midwesterner moving to the big city and seeing it with slightly different eyes. And I wonder what what keeps you coming back to the Midwest in fiction? And is that part of it that it's sort of, you can see how that would give somebody a very particular perspective that you're interested in? Well, it's funny. It's funny, even like the framing of your question to say like what, what brings you back to the Midwest? Like, like I almost feel like, like would, would someone who writes novels set in New York, would it be like, what brings you back? Yeah, to that's true. That's a Manhattan good point. Or yeah. whatever that it's, so I, it's more that I, I think that, you, that there is some element of like, write the book that you want to read. And I think there can be in the United States, you know, f- from the coasts, there can be this surprisingly un nuanced, unsophisticated idea of what the Midwest is like. And like, almost like it's, you know, people who are not psychologically complex and, and, or people who work on farms, which certainly you can be psychologically complex and work on a farm, Mm -hmm. like anything is possible. But I, I think that, that I feel like, 
you know, wherever people live, they tend to feel invested in their lives and they tend to have complicated emotions. And so, and I think like, why, why wouldn't I set my fiction in the Midwest, which is where I've lived, you know, I have lived a little bit on the West Coast, more on the East Coast, but I've lived the bulk of my adult life um, in the Midwest. So I think like, why wouldn't I set it here? Yeah, you've exposed my East Coast snobbery. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Curtis Sittenfeld, it's been an absolute delight to have you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Thank you. I I think we've like... um, solved the problem that we've solved the marriage plot i think it's <laughs> i think octavia might disagree <laughs> but we got a step closer Octavia and I are back to talk about the genre of romantic comedy. So regular listeners to the show will know that I am a big consumer of romantic comedies, while Octavia is more skeptical (laughs) of them. (laughs) So I thought we should maybe start by exploring that division in our tastes, getting ready for some literary friction, possibly. So Octavia, what makes you skeptical about romantic comedies? And is there anything that you like about the four? (laughs) Oh my God, you make me sound like such a hag. (laughs) I don't want to go in too hard. So I'm going to start with what I like about the genre, okay? So I think rom-coms can be absolutely brilliant at satirizing the world we live in in a really fun and funny way. And that can be great as a reader. They're basically stories of desire, right? Which means they're a vehicle for writing about all the things that people want, you know, not necessarily just sex and love and romance, but actually they can also be about money, fame, security, whatever else. You can get into some quite interesting kind of avenues and channels. And that can lead to some really wry and funny observations about reality and about the time that they're set in. And I love to laugh. So when they're funny, amazing. When they really are funny and you get a a belly laugh reading them, I I think that's great. There are some things that I don't like. <laughs> I'm just getting out my uh, my sword or whatever. No, I mean, I think my, my main issue is that traditionally they are a vehicle for the kinds of social mores that I personally find pretty regressive. And I think it's hard to make them unregressive. You know, when unthinking about these things, the rom-com is basically a vehicle for heteropatriarchal capitalism, essentially, where romantic love is presented as like this ultimate commodity to which every other kind of love takes second place. Every other pursuit becomes less important. And I think it means that I am just, I can't enjoy them. I can't relax enough to enjoy them because I'm just offended, (laughs) basically, (laughs) by the premise. I think that you, you know, you find in rom-coms a lot of very stereotypical men are from Mars, women are from Venus stuff. You know, men are like this, women are like this. Stereotypes all the way. So that, that I also struggle with when they're not being subverted. But I think, I think maybe my main issue is I am very skeptical of stories that overly romanticize romantic love because I think that romance culture has a lot of very negative things to answer for in the in society at large. I think I just think that you know it shapes people in a way that can hinder them from finding fulfilling lives for themselves whether they include romantic love or not. I can though see 
that if you didn't find all of those things as kind of grating as I do, the, the, the genre could be a very comforting one, right? It's very predictable in a way that is ritualistic and satisfying. If you feel welcomed by it, it's a lovely escape into the fantasy of um, of happiness and a life that ends up in a comfortable, safe place. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Have I am I unfair? No, you're not being unfair. I think all of those are very legitimate criticisms that I agree with to some extent. I think I think maybe rom coms are doing slightly more interesting things than you're giving them credit for, especially now. But I also feel like I think you can hold those two things at once. And I think that's true of engaging with a lot of different kinds of genre fiction. I can't help but love them. And I think I can love them at the same time as thinking, okay, it's not great that these are all about romantic love. But I don't feel that loving them makes me sort of desirous of their version of happiness if that makes sense. Like, I think I can have some separation from it to be like, okay, that's a little bit ridiculous. But that's even kind of part of the fun for me, if you know what I mean. Mm. I love that romantic comedies are about feelings. They're stories about feelings. And I don't think that a lot of our kind of stories prize that above everything else. And that's one of the reasons why I love them so much. I mean, I, I don't think it's a mistake that the rom-com has often been relegated to the same space as kind of women's fiction, which is like, okay, only women are interested in these things. Only women are interested in the relationship being the main thing that this story is about. And I love reading about relationships. I love, you know, I I would be, I'd like to think I'm as interested in a rom-com about a uh, platonic relationship or some other kind of relationship that's not just a kind of traditional heterosexual couple. It's more about two people coming together, seeing their chemistry, sort of knowing that it ends up well, at least at the end of the story, and being along for the ride, seeing how they get there. And I do think that thing about comfort is true and not quite for the reason that you talked about it being comforting, which is like being able to escape into the fantasy. I think it's more about kind of what you said, which is like following the beats of the story. Like I, you know, I, I like that they often make me laugh. I like they have, that they have certain rules. You know, there's like the meet cute. There are obstacles that the couple encounters. They get together at the end. And the fun is sort of how is the writer and the actors working within that structure to make it interesting. And... I don't think this is the most progressive genre by any means. But I also think, I don't know. I, I this It's a real question. It's like, do we only consume art that reflects the exact values that we want to see modeled in the world? I, I would say that's quite limiting in terms of what you're asking. I think definitely limiting. I think what's interesting about like listening to you describing everything you like about the rom-com. I think we've hit upon another thing that means I'm never going to love it is because I don't like predictability. So <laughs> I love books about relationships too, but I need there to be the potential that it will be a perilous, terrible end where nobody's happy. And then if they are happy, great. But like, I think that is the problem for me that the formula is too fixed because it will always have a happy ending for definite. And that's wow. something that takes away a lot of enjoyment for me fascinating. Yeah, isn't that wild? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, do you think 
there's any kind of romantic comedy that does feel progressive or transgressive. I mean, or do you think that what we've just described about its tropes means that it's always going to be traditional in its view of love and relationships? I'm sure that there are some progressive and transgressive rom-coms out there and I haven't read them because it's not a genre I seek out. So I don't want to speak out of turn, I guess. But I do think it's really, really hard to step outside of the things about the genre that make it, you know, old-fashioned, I guess. I mean, I think one of my main sort of anxieties about it is that because it's about desire, really, a rom-com, it's also tied to a lot of tropes often of conventional attractiveness. And I think the thing about a lot of mainstream rom-coms anyway is they're trying to hit the beats that will appeal to a really wide audience, right? So it makes total sense that they would fall back on the tropes of conventional attractiveness. They're trying to sell the fantasy to as many readers as possible. So that means that they are going to be, you know, people who adhere to certain elements of beauty culture, like they'll probably be thin, they'll probably be white, they'll probably be muscly when they're men. And I think what would be transgressive in the genre, and I'm sure these books are out there and I just don't know them, but is, you know, have fat protagonists, have disabled protagonists falling in love, have non-white protagonists, queer protagonists, whatever, the whole thing. And, you know, you mentioned Detransition Baby earlier, which I don't know if I agree that that's strictly a rom-com, but it's definitely dipping its toe in the rom-com genre and doing something really brilliant and interesting with it because of how it queers it and how it reflects back on the genre within the heterosexual expectations of it too. I think Detransition Baby is almost a book that shows you the the door, the back door out of the rom-com into something that breaks the genre and relies less on the formula. But yeah, I, I, that's one of the things that I find really frustrating about it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I do think those rom-coms exist, especially more recent ones, especially in terms of watching. I feel like I've watched some rom-coms recently that feature communities or relationships that traditionally haven't been given as much space in mainstream storytelling. And also communities that are often in stories punished for their romance, right. you know, especially in the gay community, there's this like trope that like gay gay love can't just exist; it has yeah. to be punished in some way. Or it and has so to I come think, out of tragedy in some yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the romantic comedy is like giving space for joy and love to maybe voices or characters who haven't gotten a lot of it in in sort of mainstream storytelling. So that's important. And what I'm thinking about here specifically is Rye Lane, which I recommended on the show definitely a rom-com. There are two Black protagonists. It's set in London and it's just joyful. And it's it's about chemistry and falling in love. I mean, it does sort of rest on some of these tropes, but in some ways it feels, it feels important that those two characters are just given the chance to have fun and be joyful on screen. I also really enjoyed Fire Island. Oh, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, I don't know. I yeah, I'd re- I would recommend it to you. I would also recommend it more generally, more fulsomely to other people, but um, it's, it's <laughs> definitely a rom-com. Um, it's, and it's an update of Pride and Prejudice set on Fire Island in the gay community, kind of going there to get away. It's this famous kind of gay refuge. And it retells the story in kind of fun and interesting ways. It's really funny. I think it's also very thoughtful and I really enjoyed it. And and then I was also thinking in terms of books, the British Nigerian writer Bolu Babalola, 
who is obsessed with romantic comedies, and you might know her from tweeting because uh, she's really fun. To I love on her on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's amazing. <laughs> I've never read any of her books, though, but I, I've always wanted to because she's so fucking great on Twitter. She's so great on Twitter. And she tweets a lot about romantic comedies. Um, and her first book was called Love and Color, which was a collection of love stories from around the world retold. But they're very focused on West Africa, include a lot of Black protagonists for, you know, for the reason of, like she has said in interviews, I didn't often see those people represented in love stories and they deserve love stories as much as anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. She has a debut novel called Honey and Spice, which is also a rom-com, which I would really love to read. So when I was thinking about this particular genre, I realized that I watch a lot more romantic comedies than read them. And I suspect that's true for a lot of people. It just seems like a more established genre in film, first of all, but I think there's something more going on. So do you think that rom-coms are easier to depict in film or TV than in books? I do. I think in so many ways, because the rom-com is basically a story about aspiration for that reason, it's really well suited to film, which is kind of the aspiration machine par excellence, right? Like rom-coms are about romantic aspirations, but if it follows the traditional format, especially in film, my God, of everything coming up roses in the end, it's also often about changing social status, you know, traditionally the woman, right? But it can be also, as we talked about, about looks and desirability, which obviously it's very easy to render on screen in a particular way. And like, I think also... It's such a classic of the the rom-com movie is like the transformation, right? Like I'm thinking of Lainey Boggs and she's all that. Oh, and yeah. like, <laughs> like the cute but nerdy clueless woman suddenly gets a hairbrush and becomes a fox. And like, again, like we're talking about operating within these very strict structures of conventional beauty, but it is what what happens. And, you know, that's not so interesting to read in a book, I don't think. Like <laughs> she brushes her hair, she does her nails, she brushes her teeth. She, you know, it's very long and boring written down, but you can do um, um, a lot of magic with a montage on, on screen, right? Um, the same with the like, the the classic montage of getting ready for the date and trying on 18 different outfits. And I think like there's a lot in the rom-com about imagined identities, imagined futures, and you can render that stuff so quickly on screen. Whereas in a, in a novel, it needs a lot more description and probably would get quite dull. I don't know. I think also there's another thing about it. When, when I watch rom-coms, I don't really watch them very often. When I did in the past, it was often in the cinema. And actually when I saw Rylane, it was in the cinema. And I was reminded of what is great about watching a rom-com in the cinema, which is you're in a room full of people reacting as well. And if the rom-com is doing its job, there are moments when you're all shipping so hard for the couple to get together that you get kind of swept up in the excitement or like in the moments of obstacles, you're all a bit devastated. And like that communal experience around it can be great. And obviously that's very difficult to do with books. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I watch a lot of romantic comedies by myself and I think I enjoy them as much, but I I agree. The communal experience is so much better. And I think all of those things are right. I also was thinking about the fact that I do think it's harder to be funny in books. I think like comedy comes easier on screen when somebody is actually talking. And so that is possibly part of it. I also just think that actors play such a big role in rom-coms. You know, it's, it's about chemistry, in fact. And, you know, you can write chemistry in a book and make us believe in a relationship, but it's less immediate than just watching two people who have a ton of chemistry come together. And, and in fact, many 
romantic comedies have been ruined by lack of yeah. <laughs> chemistry between the leads. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I started to question that a little bit. And I think I've definitely read some romantic comedies that I've really enjoyed. And maybe it's that, as I said, it's just a more defined genre in film. Um, whereas in books, a lot of books play with the romantic comedy, but they wouldn't call themselves romantic comedies, not least because I don't think people necessarily go to the bookshop thinking, I want to buy a romantic comedy, if that makes sense. So, you know, I really enjoyed Standard Deviation by Catherine Heine. I enjoyed that too. That was a great listen. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels like a romantic comedy, more of like kind of married couple coming back together in a sense. Yeah. Uh, But definitely definitely following the beats. Breaks the mold a bit, but as you say, hits the beats as well. Yeah. Yeah. Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding. Jane Austen, yep, you know, the OG romantic comedian, That's you might right. say. <laughs> um, um, I was even thinking like Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has some elements of romantic comedy in it while, while also containing a lot of other things. But I do think it's something that runs through a lot of novels that maybe doesn't get called romantic comedy. I think basically there are stories, there are novels that are stories of love and joy and romance, but they don't fit the rom-com title because they also involve things that are really sad, Mm. you know? And you can't have that. Like the romantic comedy does not contain very much sadness at all. It might contain some mild peril, but even the sad bits, I think of four weddings and a funeral, the funeral is very sad, but it's a very small bit, (laughs) you know, like the driving, the driving energy is joy and love and pleasure, right? So I think that's my resistance to it because I want a slightly more balanced picture on the whole. I want joy only. (laughs) (laughs) Octavia, what is your recommended rom-com if you have one? Mine is an an old classic, actually. It's A Room with a View by E.M. Forster, um, which I like because it's very caustic about love. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically set in a very stuffy Edwardian England and it's a critique of early 20th century life in England, basically, and the culture. And it pokes kind of merciless fun at the restrictions of class and of all these different social conventions. It really delights in their absurdity. And I just, I haven't read it for quite a long time, but I remember finding it brilliantly knowing about the expectations and limits of the romance novel. So it's kind of a meta critique, basically. And um, it's also partly set in Italy and involves these great scenes in Italy. And it has this wonderful secondary cast of fabulous characters that surround the main lovers, which makes it a really, really satisfying novel. Yes, I need to, I tried to read that on audio and I just could not get on with it, but maybe I need to just read it itself because it sounds amazing. I think you'd enjoy it if you could get into it. Yes, I am going to try it. Um, So mine is a book I mentioned just now, Standard Deviation by Catherine Heine. And as I said, it's kind of the, a trope of remarriage, which is an established genre within the romantic comedy. And in fact, a lot of the kind of screwball comedies of the the black and white era are kind of comedies of remarriage in one way or the other. It's set in New York. It's genuinely funny. And it features one of the all-time memorable characters, Audra. Oh, yeah. Whose voice is still in my head to this day. She's great. It's a great book.
All right, we are back here with Curtis to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I'd love to. My recommendation this month is the novel August Blue by Deborah Levy, which uh, was published in May. And I don't want to give too much away, but basically it's about a concert pianist named Elsa who dyes her hair blue and then walks off the stage during a major performance and drifts around Europe. And on this kind of journey, itinerant journey around Europe, she keeps meeting this woman who seems to be her double. And she hears this woman's voice inside her mind and it shapes her kind of next passage. And I don't know, I just love being back in in Deborah's world of symbols and textures and tastes. And it's written in, in her classic style, a kind of small, very tight, very visual vignettes. And as you read, they keep kind of taking on new meaning and the symbols stack up and speak to each other in different ways. And her style is very light. You can feel like you're dancing across the page a little bit, but actually as it builds and builds and builds, you realize you're being drawn into this world of thinking and this way of looking at the world and a a structure for kind of looking at the world. And I think, you know, her writing style, I mean, she's published so many books and in different styles and different ways. And in this novel, it feels really distilled in some way. Like it's very, very clear and precise. Each sentence is packed with significance and all these references and these ideas that just keep unfurling. And I found actually they've all kept unfurling in my mind long after I finished it, which is a wonderful achievement. And it's not long, you know, it's not a long book, but it's full, packed full of, of things and thoughts and references in the way that she writes and the, the sort of worlds that she builds. I feel like in this novel, more than some of her others, it really feels like she's reaching beyond the boundaries of the form into something different. There's kind of a very playful subversion. It's not connected to her living autobiographies, but it feels like the voice that she reached in those has kind of transmuted and is now telling a different story. And actually, there was a a piece recently in The Guardian, I'm afraid I can't remember who wrote it, but it was basically a long piece about why her writing is so great. And the journalist said, these are books that show you a different, more enriching way to look at the world. And this novel, more than the others, in a way I feel is is the perfect example of that. You read it and you come out of its world and you start to notice these intense little vignettes as, as almost as if the narrator is in your head telling you to look for these symbols and signs and things. So I, I'm really looking forward to reading it again, actually. I think it's going to be very rewarding on a second pass. That sounds great. So Curtis, could we have your recommendation, please? Um, yes, there's a book, a June 2023 first novel called Everything's Fine. Um, and the writer's name is Cecilia, I think it's Rabis or Rabis, R-A-B-E-S-S. And it's about, there's sort of two main characters, although one of them is a more main, main character <laughs> than the other. It's um, a woman and man who went to college together knew each other, didn't like each other that much. Then they end up working at Goldman Sachs together in New York. Um, He is like a fairly conservative white guy. She is a more progressive Black woman. They become very close. And then it sort of follows their employment and their relationship over a few years. And it is fantastic. And I I should say, like, I didn't know I wanted to read like a Goldman Sachs novel, which it it mostly isn't, although it sort of is. But it's just like, the dialogue is outstanding. The characters are super realistic and complicated. And the relationship between them is just very 
like juicy and nuanced and, you know, different at different times. And it's like a brilliant book. And I, I highly, highly recommend it. Great. Thank you. So my recommendation is the novel Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. You might remember that Catton won the Booker for her novel, The Luminaries, which I haven't read. But I am really thinking about it now that I've finished Burnham Wood, which is so good. It's basically a novel that shouldn't be possible. It is a at once a very nuanced tale about environmental degradation, the pride and ego that resides in all of us, the current state of leftist politics. But it is also an extremely satisfying and plotty thriller. Oh my God. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I think it works because her prose is so confident and controlled. She has such a firm grasp of how people think and speak. And it's so direct, but it's also really deep at the same time. And... Essentially, it's a story of a small activist group in contemporary New Zealand called Burnham Wood who plant gardens in vegetable patches in abandoned sites. And then their founder, Mira, becomes entangled with this tech billionaire who is also a prepper who's kind of building a a doomsday shelter in New Zealand. And he invites them onto his land to farm next to a national park. I don't want to give any more away, but events do take a turn. And (laughs) (laughs) I really just was having so much fun. I forgave this novel all of its flaws. But I also love that it was was working within so many structures of existing texts, like Macbeth, you know, Burnham Wood is is, um, the wood that comes to Dunsinane. Is it Dunsinane? Mm -hmm. Something at the end of the play. Also the thriller genre. It feels really rich and metatextual. It's also very specific to New Zealand, and I feel like I actually learned a lot about New Zealand by reading it, but it feels very universal as well in in terms of global ideas about the environment and politics and individual responsibility. And I listened to the audiobook, which is read by a great Kiwi actor named Saskia Marleveld. So you should read it. It's great. It sounds brilliant. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Curtis Sittenfeld and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners, which we love to do. We do love to reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>